A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. Today we are very lucky. We are joined by someone who has more credentials than Matt and I combined. She's a lecturer of food science and human nutrition and an NHMRC early career research fellow at the University of Newcastle. She writes for ABC Online, The Conversation, Broadsheet Magazine and more. And she was the 2017 New South Wales Young Tall Poppy. Pick a medium and she's been on it. Radio, TV, podcast. She's a twin. She's also one of ten. She has two cats and unfortunately is a fan of the Newcastle Jets. Dr. Emma Beckett, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, Can I also say that Dr. Beckett has a brilliantly informative Facebook page and a Twitter account and I suggest everyone follow her on Twitter at Synapse101 and Facebook Dr. Emma Beckett, Food and Nutrition Scientist where basically she blows apart all these food and diet-related myths that seem to permeate through the colon of society. How do you like that? It's, it's a very good description. There's a lot of myths <laughs> out there, and that does allude to exactly what those are. <laughs> Perfect. All right, what we might do is we might start with getting some terms down. So we're basically going to be discussing hunger and appetite. And as I was reintroducing myself to the physiology of hunger and appetite, it reminded me just how complex it actually is. So maybe so us and our listeners are on the same page. Let's define hunger. Let's define appetite. Let's define uh, satiety and satiation. Have I got that right? Satiety. 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 It doesn't sound like the right word to say. Satiety. Yes, please. Can you define those terms for us? I feel like teaching the first years how to pronounce that is a big part of my job, so don't feel bad. Um, okay, so hunger. Hunger is that that's the feeling that like you need food. That's the physical aspect of it. So that's the, the rumbling tummy, that's the low blood sugar, that's the feeling fatigued because you don't have enough food in you. Whereas appetite, appetite is more than that. Appetite brings in the brain and the desire to eat and the fact that you want food. So hunger can't be ignored. Appetite can be ignored. You can say, I want to eat that, but I'm, I'm not going to, whereas hunger is physiological. Hunger will keep going. And if you ignore it, you are going to die. So I was just going to say that. So hunger is physiological and appetite's psychological? So appetite brings in both. So appetite... Hunger is part of appetite. Hunger can trigger appetite. But there's always situations, we've all been in a situation where we have kept eating even though we're not hungry because the food is there and it's a habit or because it's really tasty and we don't want to waste it. Um, we've all been in that situation. But then we've also been all been in situations where we've been hungry but we've had no appetite. So, you know, after a breakup, when you're hungry, you feel tired, you feel the low blood sugar, you, your, your tummy's rumbling, but you don't want to eat because you have that emotional distress. So, so appetite that, brings in the psychology. So would that be 
you know, when Michael cooks for me, <laughs> I'm hungry, but then when I see he's cooking, I'm just, I've lost my appetite. Is that <laughs> a fair... That absolutely works, yeah. If, if there's a meal in front of you that you don't want to eat, if it's food you don't like or it's it's p prepared poorly, I'm not, not judging Mike's cooking, <laughs> uh, then, then that would be a situation where you had no appetite but, but you would still be hungry. Okay. And so what about satiety and, did I say it right that time? I think I did. Satiety and satiation. So satiety and satiation, people will often use them interchangeably. And um, if I think back to conversations I've had with people, I've probably done it myself. But satiation is particularly uh, specific to that, that desire to stop eating at the end of the meal. I'm, I've, I've eaten enough here, I'm going to stop now. Whereas satiety is the, the feeling of fullness, that suppression of appetite that continues for a period after that meal and until you start desiring the next meal. So satiation is a, a pinpoint in time, whereas satiety is an ongoing process. Okay, so, so they're, they're obviously intimately linked, though. Absolutely. Okay, and, and would you say that when it comes to, and we'll get to the hormonal control in a second, but... Would you say that one would be characterised by one or a group of hormones more so than the other? Or is it not necessarily, is it more based upon the, the feeling? So a bit of both. So um, some of the hormones are going to act in, in the short term and they're going to trigger different changes in the rest of your body in the short term. Um, so that's going to be, I've had enough, I'll put, put the fork or put the spoon down. Whereas the satiety, that that's your, your longer acting hormones and also the effect of those hormones then looping back to the brain it releasing more neurotransmitters and sending signals back to the rest of your body so that's the longer term satiety and also waiting for those hunger signals to come back is is while we're in that longer satiety period okay perfect okay so michael are you happy with the definitions there Perfect. Okay, all right. I just want to say to the listeners that Mike and I are sharing microphones here, so we're going to be um, sounding worse than we usually do. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that was possible. Okay, so Emma, these sensations that you've gone through, why are they important for the general health, let's say, of the animal or for us as humans? Well, obviously, appetite and hunger are important for telling you to eat. If we don't eat, we can't get nutrients in. So it's an important part of us as humans and for other animals to have that desire to eat. And uh, if we don't eat, we're not going to get enough nutrients. We're going to be malnourished. The rest of our body can't work. Flip side, you need the signals to say when you've eaten enough. Otherwise, you're going to overindulge. You're going to overconsume. And that's when we get problems with excess calorie consumptions and the problems of overweight and obesity. So the balance of getting hunger, appetite, satiety and satiation correct is all about maintaining that optimal state of nourishment and encouraging us to do that. Okay. And so when we look at other animals, uh, I know you're not a vet, but just to try and put it in perspective for humans, let's say from my experience, I've got um, goats and I live next door to a neighbor who's got horses. And if you were to give them a type of, well, a food that, that they liked and just let them go full, um, Full goat, full goat. <laughs> um, they will essentially almost eat themselves to death. Um, which actually, I, I have lost a goat from that, and the my neighbour next door almost lost her horse because she got into the um, the horse got him not, not she didn't <laughs> uh, the horse got into the chicken food and just went nuts with like twenty kilos of chicken food. Um, do do humans do this better in terms of saying, okay, we've had enough, I've had enough, I'm going to make myself sick here or kill myself? Do, so is our um, sensations better regulated, do you think, than other animals? Yes and no. You could argue that we that humans are eating too much and killing themselves. We're just doing it in a, a chronic disease manner rather than an, an acute overconsumption manner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there definitely are problems with, with eating too much. I guess it comes back to evolution in terms of, you know, we, we, our ancestors evolved in a time where, where food wasn't readily available. So you had to have that drive to eat an excess amount of food while it was there so that you had the nutrients and you had the energy stored for when you were in that fasting period when food wasn't available. 
So if you think about the horses and the goats, then, you know, they're probably, I guess you'd say less evolved or evolved differently to us and they haven't um, gotten to the point of making the conscious decisions about mealtime. They also don't have any control over their own mealtime. You're bringing them the food or they're eating the food when it comes. Um, whereas these days, you know, humans have food readily available and that's part of the problem with the whole, you know, cycles of, of fad dieting and, and people eating too much and then starving themselves and, and the signals that that gives us um, that we've evolved to have um, makes that more difficult. So, you know, food is readily available now, which is great, but food is not um, always meant to be readily available in terms of our biology. Yeah, I think that's, that's perfect. Um, it it's, it's interesting. I think the, the point that you made being the fact that we, we evolved hungry and when we had food, we would ingest that food and potentially we, and I, my assumption would be it's pretty old evolutionarily speaking, you know, our desire, maybe not desire, but our mechanisms for hunger would be very old and very complex. Um, so what are, so you've alluded to some of the short-term control mechanisms um, and some of the long-term control mechanisms, but can we start talking about some specific factors that are involved in this? So the funny thing is, the hunger is actually very simple. The, the signaling that says you need to eat is the simple part. It's the signaling that says you should stop eating now, you've had enough to eat that's very complicated. And that says a lot about the, the necessity of those drives and the different ways uh, they would have evolved. Um, so in terms of knowing that you're hungry, knowing that you're ready to eat, there's really just one main hormone that, that's involved in that, and that's called ghrelin. Ghrelin's the one that says, you know, your, your stomach is empty, you need to put something in there. So when the stomach's empty, when the, when the stomach is not stretched out, that's when that's going to be secreted. And when the stomach stretches out, when it's full of something, it stops secreting that. So that's a really simple kind of, of uh, signaling. Mm. In terms of knowing when to stop, there's a plethora of uh, hormones involved and, and other signaling as well. So in terms of stretching it out, we've got lots of nerves around our gastrointestinal tract that says this is full now. So that's what we call distension, the stretching out of the stomach and the intestines. Um, and that signals back up through your vagus nerve. There's stretch receptors there on, on the organs that say they've stretched out up to the, to the brain through the vagus nerve. Then we've got a bunch of short-term hormones. So um, the main ones are called CCK, PYY, and GLP. So they're secreted within minutes to hours of eating. So they detect the nutrients in your gastrointestinal tract. So when nutrients hit the intestines, they uh, trigger what are called enteroendocrine cells, which means gut hormone cells, basically. And those gut hormone cells secrete uh, these three hormones and a few others that, that do similar things, but they're the main ones. And then they send signals to your brain and your other organs to say that you've eaten. So they're part of regulating not just your satiation signaling, but they're part of modulating uh, the way digestion, nutrient absorption, nutrient processing actually occurs. So that's in the short term. Mm -hmm. Then glucose goes and gets into your blood and then insulin starts getting released once the glucose is in your blood. And that's when we start getting into the satiety, the more long-term signaling when it comes to the hormones. And so does that mean that if, is there a lot of redundancy in that system? So you said probably ghrelin's the main hormone involved for hunger, but then there's a number of like a plethora of hormones involved in once you're full. So if there is a problem in any one of those systems, does, is there redundancy there that the other hormones basically pick up the slack or is it sort of like a cascading effect in which if there's an issue in one, it may result in some sort of uh, satiety issue for the individual? Potentially both. So there's, there's overlap and there's specificity in what triggers each of those. So whereas, say, the, the GLP, that's generally just sensing nutrient intake in the stomach, whereas the PPY is... Uh, sensing energy intake overall or coming when we sense energy intake overall rather um, whereas the CCK that's specific for fats and proteins and it's not going to be as sensitive to the carbohydrates 
Um, so we've got differences in terms of, of those, those signals that trigger their secretion. Um, and then I guess we have some differences in terms of when they're secreted and the different jobs they do as well as being involved in satiety. I can't remember which way around it is, but one of them's going to say put more out of the gallbladder to help um, digest fats. And one of them's going to say stop with the gallbladder now. We don't need that anymore. So there's a little bit of a difference in terms of when they're acting and what their very specific jobs are in addition to satiety signaling and satiation. Uh, just a few questions still in the um, the hormones and so forth. So is there a is there a part of your brain that kind of is the control center for this hunger versus the um, fullness? Yep, so all these things are signaling back up the, uh, to the hypothalamus, which is a section in the brain that's involved with regulating hunger, but it's also involved in things like, you know, reward pathways and happy feelings temperature regulation, which is one of the reasons why uh, eating is uh, associated with temperature regulation in terms of how we respond, our body responds with heat and how we respond to wanting to eat in different heat um, or in different temperatures. So um, that part of the brain does, does a lot of different jobs, but the hypothalamus and particularly the center in the hypothalamus called the arcuate nucleus is where these signals are all ending up. Okay, and does the vagus nerve also impact there, or is that kind of another relay to that? So, said like so the vagus. Sorry, the vagus nerve is involved in everything. So the vagus nerve is going back and forth in terms of sending signals and receiving signals, um, and it's going to be involved in triggering off lots of different sections of the brain and different parts of the hypothalamus are then going to signal to other glands which are going to trigger other hormones that are then going to have feedback effects again on the vagus nerve. So it's very complicated and intertwined and, compl and complicated. I said complicated twice, but it's very... That's how complicated it is. Okay, so if we were to, to briefly summarise, there's only really one hormone that will regulate hunger and that's the ghrelin and that's why your stomach growls because it's releasing ghrelin, is that right? That's how I tell my first years to remember it, grrrr for ghrelin. And does that just go into the blood and then straight up to the hypothalamus or does that go with the, the vagus nerve? So that's an interesting question. So it's the hormones are going to get carried in the blood up to the other organs and to the brain, but the hormones can also have local signaling effects. Okay. in the, the local environment that can then have knock-on effects to the nervous signaling and then to the other hormone signaling as well. So it's a mixture of both long distance and short distance effects of the hormone. Okay, and this might be a, a difficult question to answer, but um, back in the day when people had um, stomach ulcers, they used to do a vagus nerve cut, which is called a vasectomy, is that right? Vagotomy. Vagotomy. Yeah, not vasectomy. <laughs> um, did, would that impact your feeling of hunger if that nerve was cut or feeling of fullness? If you affect those nerves, it could easily have a knock-on effect for your hunger um, because obviously the nerve signaling feeding back from that, that large bed of nerves around the gastrointestinal tract is going to have an input uh, for, for triggering these responses. Okay, so that's hunger. Just to just to recap on the feeling of fullness. So after we've eaten for a while, um, during that same meal, you have the the feeling of um, satiation, which is more to do with distension and some of those local hormones. But then, um, the ability of not wanting to eat between meals is that satiety? Is that the correct? Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Now moving on. So. What about other things like taste and smell or even say how we are in our culture? How does that affect our eating patterns or our appetite? So there's one more super important hormone that we're going to be secreting all the time that's going to um, regulate our satiety and our hunger levels and that's leptin. So leptin is secreted by our fat cells. So the idea behind leptin is the more fat you have in your body, then the more leptin you secrete and the less you will want to eat. So that's supposed to be your body saying, I've got enough stores now, don't eat anymore. So does that mean leptin is, sorry to interrupt, does that mean leptin is uh, 
less regulated by the fat you ingest and more so regulated by the fat you already have? Correct. It's not the fat that you're eating. It's the fat that you've got stored that's regulating the leptin. And so it's constantly sort of evaluating how much you have, how much you need in a way, and basically saying, all right, that's enough. It's how it should work. Um, it, the problem is when we lose weight, we lose fat cells which makes a dramatic change in the amount of leptin that we have available. So even if I start with a lot of excess weight, but then lose weight rapidly, even if I'm still overweight, I lose that leptin signaling and I get hungry again. So oh, wow. the body can get a little bit confused in how these signals are being sent and received and how they reset in response to change. Because we know you guys talk about it all the time. Homeostasis, the body doesn't like to change. So does that mean... Um the, the more you lose weight, potentially the harder it can be. That's exactly it. That's why fad diets are so horrible. Wow. Because the more fat you lose, the more hungry your body is going to be because of this leptin signaling. So it should be more instead of, uh, you know, fad diets usually espouse, let's do this quick and fast, as opposed to let's make a lifestyle change and do this over time. So is, is that the primary recommendation that, if you do this slow, over time, long term, then you're actually training your leptin levels and potentially numerous other hormones that this is the new norm, not we've just significantly changed from our baseline. That is exactly it. You're giving your body time to reset to its new threshold, its new normal. Otherwise, dieting is just like starving and your body's gonna to look to get more food on board. And that's why you've got these people who get in these cycles of weight loss, weight gain, weight loss, weight gain, because they're messing up their leptin. Wow. But then genetic differences. So you mentioned genetic differences just before. Leptin's a big one with that genetic difference. Lots of people who are overweight and obese will have differences in their genes that mean they don't produce as much leptin in response to the amount of fat they have. So we can take people feed them the same thing, but one group of people is not going to get that same signaling to say, yes, you've taken enough energy on board. So that's a big genetic difference. And lots of slim people will say that being slim is just about self-control and, and not wanting to put that in your mouth, fatty. But us fatties, we have different signals in our body telling us what we need to put in there. So is that to suggest that people who are, let's say, overweight um, have less leptin in their blood than, say, a person who is... Maybe not. So there's two ways it can work. They can produce less leptin or they can have leptin resistance in the brain. So like type 2 diabetes, but for leptin instead of insulin resistance, the same amount of leptin's there, but they're not receiving that signal the same in the brain. The receptor is either not expressing the same or it's not functioning the same. So there was an early idea when leptin was discovered that we could use it as an anti-obesity drug, give, inject people with leptin and that'll suppress their appetite. But if you've got leptin resistance in the brain, putting more in is not going to help. Wow. So I've also read that leptin and ghrelin over time can have a conversation with one another and that ghrelin is usually inhibited by leptin but can become resistant to leptin as well. Is this sort of in the similar context of what you just stated? Yep, that's absolutely how it's working because all of this is going through a loop in the brain um, and there's the these particular cells in the brain that are making particular proteins, then those proteins break down and turn into other neurotransmitters and that's kicking off the, the signaling pathway in the opposite direction. So that signal sent, signal received over time, if it's going wrong because we're eating too much or because we've got different types of genetic background, then that's going to mess up the whole loop and interact with each other, yes. Wow, that's amazing. So going back to Matt's question, um, other factors like taste and smell and culture, can you, can you talk a little bit about those and their influence? Yeah, so taste is a big one. Obviously, taste determines what we want to eat. So what you receive on your tongue is going to tell you how good a food tastes. And we've got non-tasters and tasters and super tasters. And so non-tasters taste less. They don't get as much signal from bitter foods and sweet foods and fatty foods. Um, our non-tasters, they're going to drink more alcohol. They're going to eat more fat. They're going to eat more energy. And they're more likely to be overweight because they get less signals from the food that's going into their mouth. 
but it's not just what goes into your mouth. Those taste receptors are actually all the way down the gastrointestinal tract. Mm. And they have a job in the intestines to detect the energy we've eaten, detect the sugars, detect the bitter compounds. And they're part of triggering this hormone cascade that we talked about before in terms of triggering that satiation. So even just the taste itself is enough to at least in part satiate somebody. Sometimes. So it's it's involved. It's definitely involved, but it can also go a little bit wrong. So this is one of the problems with artificial sweeteners. They trigger that taste, but then they don't trigger anything downstream of that. And so the body gets a little bit confused and goes, I've tasted sweet. I haven't got energy. What's going on? Please eat some more sweet because I need that energy. So it, it sometimes is part of triggering that signal, but sometimes can be part of messing it up if you're not following through on what your mouth thinks it. That was actually a question I had, and I, I was meant to go and look into it, and I haven't had the time, but you basically answered it for me, is that when you think about um, ingesting sugars, for example, we know that as soon as something sweet has touched our tongue, that we feel as though there's a cascading effect that's happening throughout our body. You know, we love that taste of the sugar. And I always wanted to know whether ingesting an artificial sweetener, because of the same taste sensation, whether that uh, triggers some sort of downstream cascading hormonal effect. And so, so you're saying that overall there's no downstream effect from artificial sweeteners? So it doesn't change insulin levels or anything like that? Well, so it kind of makes it go a little bit wrong. So um, if your body's expecting sugar to come in because it's tasted the sweet, then it's going to want to get ready for all those things to happen. Then when it finds that that sugar isn't there, it's going to send extra signals to say, well, well I thought sugar was coming. And your body doesn't know whether the sugar has, hasn't come or whether you've just done a lot of physical activity to use it up. Um, so, you know, I anthropomorphize here and say the body wants and the body thinks, but obviously that's, that's not how it works. Um, it just knows it's not there when it's, it got signals saying it was coming. Um, so there's studies that they've done where they give people, you know, artificial sweetener, they give them Diet Coke and, you know, those kinds of things and then um, offer them people foods and the people who have had the artificial sweetener will eat more in the subsequent meals. Uh, so what about like um, chewing gum with an artificial sweetener? So they're, they're actually chewing for like 20 minutes, swallowing basically nothing and then having an artificial sweet sensation. So chewing chewing's complicated as well. So in the short term, chewing can suppress appetite. The physical act of chewing can make you feel, you know, send some of those signals saying that you, you are eating um, and that can help suppress the appetite. But then in the long term, what you've done by starting to chew is trigger off the, the gastric juices and all those things that happen right before you eat. And before you start eating, even when you're just smelling food and thinking about eating, that starts triggering those processes. So in the long term, trigger chewing could make you feel more hungry or increase your appetite, but in the short term, it can suppress it. That's amazing. That's uh, super interesting. Um, what about smell? How, how involved is smell? I, I mean, you know that when you come home and, it, you know, if you're lucky enough and somebody, your housemate, a relative, or even your partner has cooked, started cooking a meal for you and you smell it, obviously you start to salivate your tummy starts to rumble, and then you go, you actually start to realize, oh, I am actually hungry. What's going on there? So smell is that is a really key example of that difference between the hunger and the appetite. The smell is involved in triggering the appetite as opposed to the hunger, making you conscious of the fact that you're hungry. Absolutely. Um, and I guess it's, you know, that kind of uh, triggering uh, the desire to eat through smell. And this is a really interesting one that weaves into the earlier question about culture that I haven't quite answered yet, because this comes back to, to training your senses. And there's things that can smell really good or really bad, depending on what your cultural upbringing is, depending on whether or not you met them as children. But when you taste them, they don't taste the way they smell. So the example um, is that I, I would give is durian fruit. Do you guys know durian fruit? I do know durian fruit. I lived in Fiji for a little bit, so I know durian. <laughs> so, and what does durian smell like to you? Not great. Mm. 
It's like it's like banned in every hotel in Malaysia. <laughs> banned like in sign. airlines. Yeah. So if you've grown up with durian fruit, it doesn't smell like that. So we've all met it in adulthood, and to us, it smells. The best description I've heard is like rotting flesh. It yeah. is disgusting to us. But if you've been raised with durian fruit then your body's been trained not to get those negative odours and it, it's sweet and it's perfectly acceptable. And if you can hold your nose and get past the smell and, and taste the durian fruit, even as an adult, you, you will find it perfectly palatable. Wow. So that comes back to the whole idea of taste training and smell training and the expectations. Um, same with kids. Kids don't want to eat their vegetables. Mums and dads, stop being mean to your kids um, because they don't want to eat their veggies because to a little kid, Veggies literally taste like poison because kids will put anything in their mouth. Bitter things are often poisonous. Bitter plants often poisonous. Obviously, it's evolved so that kids won't eat all the bitter stuff and die. And as we grow up and get more sensible about what we put in our mouths, our bitter tastes dampen down and we start liking veggies. So, you know, your taste changes over time. Your smell changes over time and you become more responsive to foods that you didn't like before. So when my baby girl doesn't like eating broccoli, it's because she's trying not to get poisoned by me. Because evolution does not want her to get poisoned, yes. So when, when your little kid acts like your veg, their veggies taste like poison, don't be mean to them. They really do taste like poison. What you need to do is the no thank you bite. Get them to put it in their mouth because the brain has to learn, I ate this and I didn't get sick. I mm. ate this and I didn't die. I ate this and nothing bad happened. And then the loop is going to form in the brain that feeds back and says, okay, that didn't kill me. Think about learning to like your first beer. You didn't like your first beer, right? Like no one drinks their first beer and goes, this is delicious, I'll have another. They're all going, I have to drink this because my friends will judge me if I don't. But over time, you learn that beer makes you feel good. You learn that beer doesn't kill you and then it becomes more tasty. Think about coffee. You know, everyone puts sugar in their coffee when they're a kid and, and we stop doing that over time. So that's taste training and that's part of triggering our appetite, our appetitive response to those foods. Would that also be kind of compounded by if the child was to get super tasty foods um, at a similar time and you're introducing some new foods that weren't as tasty, let's say they were getting chocolate or Coca-Cola or something, and then you gave them broccoli, because something like chocolate tastes so awesome, they would feel that broccoli tastes horrendous? Mm, actually, it might work the other way around. So if you gave them the chocolate first, chocolate's got fat and salt in it. Fat and salt are going to bind to the receptors that detect the bitter on the tongue and they're going to reduce the negative flavours in the broccoli. So that's oh, why broccoli tastes better when you put butter on it. Wow, that's brilliant. So I'm going to give my baby girl chocolate, large copious amounts of chocolate. <laughs> She'll be loving that. <laughs> We're almost doing it the wrong way around. You get your chocolate for dessert after you've eaten your veggies. True, that's what it should be. First, our veggies would taste better. Well, just, just on that, why is it then that you could eat a meal, you're full, but when the sweets come out, you could always just have that extra room for, you know, that chocolate cheesecake? Yeah, the dessert stomach is a real example of the difference between hunger and appetite. You want that cheesecake, so even though you're not hungry, you're going to put it in your mouth. So that's another clear example of the difference between hunger and appetite. I have an appetite for cheesecake, whether or not I'm hungry. So is, is that basically just the cortex overwhelming the innate? Um, so, because I assume at the end of a meal, you'd be satiated. At, so is that appetite more so part of the cortex and you going, okay, I'm gonna take control at this point. I know I'm full, but I'm just gonna do it anyway because I need to. I don't know, uh, I need to get my fix, get my chocolate cheesecake fix. This is the annoying thing about the willpower argument is it's so much easier to will yourself to override the satiation signal than it is to will yourself to override the hunger signals. Um, and that probably comes back again to evolution. And in the old days when we were cave people, there was more advantage in having that extra thing even though we weren't hungry than there was in starving ourselves because the cave people did not have supermarkets. Okay. And one last just question on this point. Is there any truth to, you know, when you want to, let's say you're relatively hungry and you start a meal, you crave more um, savoury, more salty things and then the sweets come later. Is there a reason for that or is that again a cultural kind of uh, behaviour? 
No, that actually um, does come back to taste and the, the taste signaling. Um, so by alternating between sweet and savory, you're stimulating different sets of taste receptors. So you're basically giving, giving your body time to get over the fact that it's been inundated already with enough sweet. Um, so, you know, if I've eaten too much chocolate, then I want some chips. And then once I've had enough chips, I want my chocolate again. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the chips the best. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very tasty, not great for, for those of us trying to control our weight. So it's definitely helping you get past those satiety signals. Is that why they give, when you do like a bigger station, they give you a palate cleanser? I didn't, I truly don't understand what they mean by a palate cleanser, but is that the concept there? Is that they're letting, basically giving one set of taste buds a rest while stimulating the other? Kind of, yeah. So often those um, palate cleansers will be citrusy things, things that are going to stimulate the sour receptors, um, and they're not going to be the dominant flavours in the, the thing that you're having either side. Um, so potentially, but again, you've got to think about the psychology that's weaved into that. If you're paying a lot of money for a degustation and a fancy man in an apron says, oh, this will cleanse your palate, there's a lot to that and not just the, the physiology in your mouth. Yeah, gotcha. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about culture or do you think we've knocked that nail on the head? Uh, well, I guess culture has a lot. It's not just about what you want to eat. Culture is about when you want to eat and when you're used to eating. So if you think about um, different religions and their different habits in terms of feasting and fasting, um, when it's okay to eat, when it's not okay to eat, I look at people in fasting cultures and think, my gosh, how could they do that? But if you've been raised in a fasting culture where it's a perfectly normal part of your life, then that can make it easier for you to be able to tolerate that in later life. Mm. Um, and just to quickly go back, when you were talking about um, the, the positive association for kids, for example, eating broccoli um, over time, is that the, sort of the same mechanism when you, let's just say you ate some seafood and you love seafood, but then you got food poisoning while you were eating that seafood and then any thought of that type of food makes you feel sick. Is that the same basic thing happening there? You, some negative influence? Okay. That's the exact same thing. And, you know, everyone's got their nemesis alcohol that they had too much of when they're a teenager and they can't drink anymore. It's the exact same thing as that. Okay. Um, now, I'm extremely interested in the microbiome. I, a couple of months ago, I did a, what I would call a deep dive and it just grazed the surface of what's going on at the moment. I mean, the microbiome is being implicated in everything at the moment. Um, it, you know, it's been involved in a number of neurodegenerative diseases. There's the link, the gut-brain axis that, that um, is, oh God, thousands of papers being published at the moment on that every day. Um, but I'm really interested to know the role of the gut microbiome when it comes to hunger and appetite and maybe controlling that. What is the relationship there? Mm, it's complicated. So the, the gut microbiome is going to be involved in everything we've been talking about in a couple of different ways. Um, so first, there's the, the, the fact that the microbes actually metabolize energy as well. So they're going to be using some of the carbohydrates and some of the the energy that you've eaten. And some people have microbes that are really good at doing that, which basically means the microbes are taking some of that energy and there's less for you. So those people are gonna be better at maintaining body weight. And they're, they're those people who can eat more and it, it doesn't seem to affect them. Then we've got the things that the microbes secrete, the things that the microbes metabolize in our gut that actually hit those enteroendocrine cells we talked about and trigger off those hormones we talked about before. So things like your short-chain fatty acids are going to be um, metabolized by your gut bacteria and they're going to trigger off the PYY, the GLP, those short-term satiety hormones, association hormones that we talked about before. See, I use them interchangeably even though it's wrong. So, so the, <laughs> that's okay. So it's, it's, it's fine. Is, so the gut microbes actually will produce, they'll create products that will be hitting all these receptors involved in appetite and hunger. So, I'm sorry, hunger and satiety. Oh, God. See? Satiety. Satiety. 
So yeah, see, so the gut microbes might be involved in both the satiation and the satiety because the gut microbes don't just change immediately after a meal, right? They're there long term. So if they're constantly pinging off these short chain fatty acids that are then triggering your increase in your satiation hormones, that's going to make satiety last longer. Okay. And do the gut microbes, do they only have a particular energy source that they want or fuel or is there a certain type of food that they're after? Is there a type of food that they won't metabolize and is there something that they really want you to ingest? Yeah, so that's when people talk about your prebiotic diets. So if eating your prebiotics, prebiotics are your bacteria food. So the bacteria need prebiotics to eat. And basically, if you want to eat more prebiotics, you need to eat more, more high fiber foods. The foods that have fiber in them are going to be the same foods that have your prebiotics. And your fiber can't be digested at, by you as it goes through the rest of your gastrointestinal tract. So it's there, left over, ready for the microbes to eat. And coincidentally, fiber makes you feel full because it literally fills up the space in your gastrointestinal tract. So that eating fiber is going to have a double whammy in terms of feeding the microbes and in terms of that physical distension in the gastrointestinal tract to help you feel fuller longer. So when the gut microbes start to try and metabolize some of the this fiber and they produce some of these short-chain fatty acids, do these short-chain fatty acids, in, in addition to making us feel full, for example, do they have other systemic-related effects? Yep, and this is one of the things that is absolutely still being discovered. So the short-chain fatty acids, they don't just hit those enteroendocrine cells and trigger off the, these cascades. Those short-chain fatty acids get into the blood and then can um, have effects on all the other organs. So they can be having effects on the pancreas and on the liver um, and on all their functions that are then going to have knock-on effects to the way we, we process and desire food. Um, so, yeah, it is really complicated and can reach out to all the organs. And, you know, we talk about the gut-brain axis, but it's the, the gut-everything axis. It's, sure. it's all connected. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. From my readings, it sort of seemed that you hear people talking about, you know, what is the right bacteria for my gut? You know, should I be taking a probiotic as opposed to a prebiotic, which contains this lactobacillus or whatever it may be? But as far as what I could read, it also seems like what are the products that the bacteria are producing? Not the bacteria themselves seem to be the most important point. And obviously, we're still not entirely sure what all the effects these products have as well. So is there anything you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I would say um, if you're going to buy a probiotic, there is no point taking a probiotic if you're not eating a good diet to give those bacteria a prebiotic. Otherwise, they're just going in and they're going to die and you're back where you started. Um, but also if you're buying probiotic products, they're often you know, proprietary lines. You'll buy one product and it will have one particular type of bacteria in there. And you know, we've got a whole ecosystem in our guts. There's thousands of different types of bacteria. So it's, it's not just one that's going to save you or ruin you. Um, and if that's not the one that you're short in, it, you're wasting your money anyway. So it's very difficult. Um, and if you don't do the right things once you've put the good bacteria in, it's just going to reset to it. It's dysbiosis um, that it started with so um, it's really complicated and yeah. there's a lot of people selling a lot of things ahead of the science there's a lot of science on it but it doesn't mean we're ready to be selling it to people the analogy i heard was that if you take a probiotic it's basically like planting one species of tree in the rainforest and expecting that species to overtake the other trees that they're there's obviously something, there's an ecosystem already there and established over time. And for you to think that you can hijack that in the short term is probably not necessarily the case. But long term, like you said, if you're eating the right foods, does, can you change your gut microbiome? The jury is out on that. So there is evidence that you can change it in the short term, but then you need to maintain the changed behaviours to maintain that new normal um, so the moment you stop whatever the the influence is there's that you know homeostasis like everything else goes back to to what it used to be um, there's a lot of mixed messages and mixed evidence in terms of what you can and can't manipulate and for how long um, and i think that's partly because we don't have really good ways of studying these things yet but i think you're absolutely right when you say 
you know, everyone's talking about selling your probiotics to, you know, increase your short chain fatty acid production and, you know, use that to, to moderate your diet. Um, what happens if we just put short chain fatty acids straight in? Um, people are only just now starting to investigate that. Another quick question is on the microbiome. You hear stories where people get bad infections and they either take um, some really heavy going antibiotics or they get a, a certain type of infection and it changes their biome. And then maybe it's so difficult for them to regulate that and that they get that dis, what was it called? dysbiosis. dysbiosis yeah. um, and then they get a, like a fecal transplant of someone who, let's say, was uh, overweight and then all of a sudden they start to put on weight because they have these, presumably this, this biome that's um, uh, more aligned to, is, in this case, would it be that these bacteria are more efficient and they're therefore giving these people more um, energy and they're put on weight that way? Or would it be that it's just um, misregulating their, their hormonal levels and their feeling of fullness and so forth? bit of both. Um, so we know that if you do, you know, these transpusions and take the, the microbiome out of one person and, and put it into another, that that does have an effect. You take overweight microbiome, put in a skinny person, they're going to get gain weight. Vice versa, put skinny microbiome in an overweight person, they're going to lose weight. And that that is partly about the efficiency levels um, of the bacteria to process energy, but also is about the secretion of, of these hormones. Um, but if you do one of those um, transfusions, then you are you do need to keep working to maintain that that new ecosystem. If you um, were on a diet of fast food and got a slim person's transfusion, you keep eating a diet of fast food, fast food, you're going to revert to your original microbiome. So you've got you've got to nurture that ecosystem once it's there. Interestingly, with antibiotics, we know that people who have had to take antibiotics when they're young are more likely to be overweight in adulthood. Um, and that's something that we're working on at the moment is why does that happen and how does that early upset of the, the microbiome um, change that signalling in the long term. And so do you think that's more so, I know you're saying you're investigating it, so the answer is yet to be determined, but do you think that's more so because it's creating a dysbiotic state as opposed to a lack of a particular bacteria or group of bacteria? Yeah, and that's one thing that people tend to focus in on when they talk about dysbiosis is, or oh, dysbiosis causes or is related to increased risk of this disease, therefore if we put this one bacteria back in, everything will be fine. That's like saying, if I'm eating fast food every day, as long as I eat some vegetables, I won't have any health effects. So it's about the, the whole um, environment, everything that's there, not just individual things. And also there's the effects. It gets even more complicated. Your microbiome um, can have feedback effects for your taste and then your taste has feedback effects for your microbiome and, you know, it's all related and it, it becomes very difficult to tease out what's actually having the effect. So you're exploring this, this correlation at the moment. Is it a certain age? Is it like babies having antibiotics or is it more like toddlers or children? Is there a certain age where it's more problematic? So the evidence mostly comes from childhood infections and particularly around things like childhood ear infections and the antibiotics used to treat those. So the original logic was that your ear infection when you're a kid um, is going to damage the nerve that sends the signals from your tongue to your brain. Um, and that's why people who have had this, these middle ear infections when their kids eat more in adulthood. Um, but now that we're learning more about the taste and the feedback effects that can occur and your um, gastrointestinal uh, taste receptors, not just your oral taste receptors, we're starting to kind of plug some of the gaps in that research and realise why it is so very complicated. And so would the, so, so obviously when you have a receptor for something, that receptor, you can actually increase the number of receptors on a cell to pick up a signal, decrease the number of receptors on a cell, or even make, just change the receptor a little bit so that it becomes more efficient or less efficient. And so does that mean that when we're looking at this sort of scenario in the gut, that maybe the gut microbiome itself is directly changing the gene expression of receptors? Is that is that the hypothesis here? 
Yeah, that's exactly exactly what, what we think is happening. So different people will have different innate functioning of all these receptors to start with, whether it's a taste receptor, whether it's a leptin receptor, a ghrelin receptor, we'll all have our own different versions because we've all got different little mistakes in our genes that make those receptors different, different shapes. Um, and then those receptors can get upregulated and downregulated in response to exposures. Um, so working out which things we can change to manipulate those receptors and that signaling in the right way is really the key to learning how we can use the microbiome to reduce disease risk rather than promote it. So yeah, this, is a, this is a hard question to answer just <laughs> before we move on to the, to the next question. Um, what do you see the future? It's always a hard question to ask a scientist about predicting the future. What do you see the future of the influence of the gut microbiome when it comes to things such as um, obesity or appetite, hunger control, um, everything around that particular scene? Do you, do you feel like it's going to be a big player or do you think it's going to be a big player in combination with something else or what, what do you envision it to be? So the way I see it going down is lots of people are going to sell lots of things that are just going to make the problem worse. Right. Um, that's the way I see it going down. I think when we're going to have success with these things is when we actually tease out the mechanisms and can actually put the thing in. So, you know, if it's the fact that these microbes are secreting or creating a particular metabolite, if that's what's having the effect, those metabolites are going to be much more stable than actual microbes. Um, so if we can circumvent the system in that way, that's where we're going to have the best therapeutic effects. But big picture is we want to get people back to a state where they're not upsetting their microbiome to start with. We want to get into a state where people aren't using antibiotics unnecessarily. We want to get into a situation where people aren't eating too much processed and fatty food and so they're not putting their, their microbes out to start with. We have people eating more of the prebiotics, more of the fiber, more of the, the nutritious foods, then that's where we're going to get the biggest change. Um, but therapeutically, actually putting those metabolites in is probably where we're going to get the biggest bang for our buck. Awesome. All right. So before, we, well, I've got a question in terms of some food hacks, but do you have any final points on, on the biome or are you all happy and all done with that now? No, I think we've pretty much covered all that off. Um, I guess the thing is, it's complicated. Don't buy anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was great. It was, it was excellent. All right, so going to food hacks in terms of influencing your hunger and appetite, you said earlier that, you know, distension will um, give you the ability of fullness, and that could be um, kind of influenced by fibre. So if you were to have higher fibre density in your food, it might give you the feeling of fullness for longer. And you also said that certain hormones like CCK is influenced by the fat concentration in your food and the PYY, was that right, um, has an influence with um, protein. So if you were to have, let's say, foods that are higher uh, fat density or more protein in it, would that give you a feeling that you are less likely to want to eat between the next meal? Is there any truth to that? Yep, that's absolutely correct. So this is funny because people call them food hacks. They're like, the food hack is you should eat oats, cucumber, celery, apple, water, fibre, and then you'll feel fuller longer. That's not a food hack. That's eating a healthy diet. <laughs> so they're the kinds of foods we should be eating to start with. So, you know, call it a hack if it makes it sound more sexy, but it, that's just eating good food. I think every scientist hates the term hack because we all know that there's no such thing as a hack. The right answer is to just do it the right way, which is usually the long, hard road. But a hack makes it sound nice and easy. But yeah, calling that a hack, that makes it much more saleable. But you're right about the fats. So that's one of the problems with low-fat diets. So people say, you know, eat less fat, you'll have less energy. Fat is very energy-dense, correct. But if you don't have the fats in, then you're not getting the signaling that says, I've had some fat, I'm full. And some fat is essential. Your body has parts in it that can only possibly be made out of fat. like yourselves. Um, so we need to get some fat in and that's where you want to be going for your good fats. So, you know, people say eating avocado or nuts is a hack to eat less. They're, they're good fats. They're going to make you feel full. It's not, it's not a hack. That's part of a normal healthy diet. Mm, that's a good point. What, what it comes, so this is just reminding me about the, the food pyramid. Now, is the food pyramid something that's still taught or discussed or is this 
you know, for dietitians and, and nutritionists such as yourself, do you look at the food pyramid and, and laugh, or or do you think no, this is this is what we're supposed to be doing? What? How do you perceive that? So we don't do the food pyramid anymore. We have a plate model now where it's a round plate that's sectioned into the portions of how much of each of those things you want to be eating, um, which is more user-friendly because you can think, well, this is my whole diet. I want this wedge, this big wedge to be fruits and veg, and I want this small wedge to be, you know, cakes and things I shouldn't be eating. So that makes it a lot more more user-friendly. Um, in terms of what we, we should be eating, most of us aren't following um, the Australian Dietary Guidelines already, so what most people think of as the food pyramid. Um, and people say, oh, well, I need to, you know, hack my diet and change these things, but we're not following the rules to start with. Um, so start there. They're supposed to be user-friendly and they're supposed to encourage you to get more of the good things in that will make you feel fuller longer. Because remember, it's about nourishment. You know, we focused, I guess, on energy and appetite being about weight. Um, but it's about getting nutrients in, in with the food and not just the fats and the proteins and the carbohydrate. You need those good, those good micronutrients as well. Just a, a little bit off topic, but still involved. And it probably feeds back to the microbiome as well a little bit. Um, here in Australia, probably especially in Queensland where we are, it's not necessarily a seasonal state. Um, we can basically, and probably it's globally now, that you can get access to any food you want at any time. Um, has this changed us and the way we, well, obviously it's changed the way we eat, but maybe more so the effect on the gut microbiome. Should we, probably shouldn't say should we, but is eating seasonally, potentially a better way to go than eating, uh, you know, what's a winter vegetable, Matt? Broccoli? I don't know. Eating a winter vegetable in summer or eating a summer something in, in winter and eating it all year round, should our guts be um, more variable in that sense and seasonal? This is one of the great ironies of the food chain, right? So we've gotten better at growing food in different situations. We've gotten better at storing food longer. So you're right. You can get the same fruit and veg all year round. You would think that the effect of that would be we can eat all the fruit and veg all year round. But the effect of that is most of us eat the same three fruit and veg over and over. If I'm an apple person, I'll, I'll be an apple person. You know, I, I started tracking my diet. Um, I was doing an assignment with my first years where they have to go home and do a food diary and I did it with them to do an example. I realized I eat peas, carrots and corns four nights a week. There's so many vegetables out there and people debate what is the best diet, whether it's the Okinawan diet or the Mediterranean diet or the Nordic diet or the whatever other of those gold standard diets. What they all have in common is variety. They are seasonal diets and they're not getting stuck in those routines. And if you're eating diversity, then you're getting all of the things that you need and you're potentially that probably does have a knock-on effect to the microbiome. And when you look at, you know, Western world microbiomes versus developing world microbiomes um, and that readily available food situation, it is hard to tease out. We talk about the Western diet being that highly processed diet. It's hard to tease out the effect of the lack of variety as opposed to just the high energy, low micronutrient dense food, comparing that to a more, a more seasonal diet. So you're absolutely correct. It could easily be having a knock-on effect, but it's very hard to tease out. Brilliant. I just have one final question, um, and it still goes on from the kind of the hacking a bit. I know you don't like that term. Um, when I was in South America, I did the Inca Trail, which was in Peru, and it was quite common for the locals, um, but also the tourists, to chew on uh, coca leaves, which is um, an endemic species which um, consequently has been now made into cocaine. But the, the locals drink it in their tea as well as chew it, uh, and it's thought to help with um, altitude sickness as well as um, a suppressant for appetite. Have you heard anything in this space, and maybe also you could possibly just comment on um, drugs or medicines that can be used for appetite suppressants. Yeah, so there is some research around uh, the coca leaf 
as an appetite suppressor. And obviously it's probably not surprising if it's where cocaine comes from, it's going to have some biological effects on your body. Um, some of the research is into appetite suppression. Some of it's into this kind of glucose smoothing effect um, that it can have. Um, but what's interesting is there's been some studies on mice where they've actually extracted the cocaine part out of the leaf and then given the other extracts to the mice, and that's had an appetite suppressing effect. Yeah. But it also has an increase in locomotion activity. Um, there's also all kinds of bioactives in those leaves, um, things like nicotine, um, all kinds of other products. Um, so in terms of it probably does have some kind of biological effect, as is demonstrated by the mouse studies. So I will say there have been mouse studies that have shown no effect. Um, but in terms of the potential side effects um, and going and, and taking cocaine or chewing the, the coca leaf, I'm, I'm not sure that that that's the best advice for, for people to be suppressing oh. appetite. But it definitely is something that is done quite traditionally. Mm. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Are there any final points? Um, is there anything that, so a lot of our listeners are aspiring health professionals. So they're going to be studying nursing, medicine, physiotherapy, um, multiple different health professions. Is there anything that you'd like to maybe leave them with as a piece of advice? I mean, Knowing, so Matt and I teach a lot of these people and we know that uh, diet and nutrition plays a very minor role in their undergraduate program, um, which leads to a lot of problems and probably leads to why fat diets and all this stuff is, is all over the place. Is there anything you'd like to say? It's crazy because nutrition underpins all the health sciences and, you know, you really can't do anything right in any of the other health sciences if you don't get the nutrition right first. You see these programs where they're rolling out vaccines in third world countries and a vaccine is not going to be able to work if your body doesn't have the nutrients to make the immune cells to yeah. respond to it. Yeah. Um, so super important in all aspects. Um, what I would say for students studying in this area and for any general listeners as well is over-the-counter appetite suppressants, be very wary of them. Um, some of them can be dangerous when consumed in excess. Often they're stimulants rather than the natural appetite suppressants. Uh, um, some of them are just absolute um, bollocks, for want of a better word. There's a particular brand that used to have ephedra, ephedrine in, in the product and it it worked as an appetite suppressant because uh, ephedra does suppress the appetite. Um, then that got made illegal to put that in appetite suppressants. So they reformulated, basically took the ephedra out and keep selling this product based on the fact that people had appetite suppression on it before. So, you know, there's a lot of trickery and sales pitching around those over-the-counter appetite suppressants. Um, but often they are, not well regulated, they're not well studied, and they can have side effects for liver, kidneys, other organ systems as well. So don't be going over the counter for appetite suppressants. Go for the hacks like eating cucumber and broccoli and healthy fiber-rich foods. Um, and in terms of actual pharmaceuticals that are going to be able to uh, suppress appetite, there are a few that are available, but they're all prescription only. So they're doing things like being uh, mimetics for those um, hormones that we talked about. But as we said, only some of them will work because if you're in a resistance situation um, and some of them are working on that dopamine pathway to try and reset the, the emotional response to food. Um, and a lot of problems that people have um, in terms of maintaining appropriate appetite can be linked to mental health. So don't be diving into a, a pharmaceutical or a fad diet kind of solution if you think you're not able to control your appetite because you need to think about the bigger picture, your microbiome, your mental health, your set point of your hormones and the food environment that you're living in. So it's very complicated and don't go for a quick fix if you think you are eating too much. Absolutely. I mean, a diet is an intervention, and we always are wary about interventions, right? You want evidence-based interventions, and you want them to be supervised by an expert or professional. But for some reason, we all think we can supervise ourselves with some sort of diet intervention with little understanding or experience, because I eat every day. I'm an expert on eating. So it's the best and worst thing about um, working in nutrition. Everyone eats food. It, it's absolutely both the best and worst, worst thing about what we do. Mm. You get so many people telling you, no, 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 just eat 
this works for me, this is it. This is what everyone should be doing, that's it. Uh, that would be very difficult. Yeah, and there's lots of skinny people who think that being skinny is a qualification in nutrition. And just because someone's been born with a particular set of genes or a particular set of lifestyle conditions, that means it's easy for them to maintain a slim weight. It does not mean, A, that they're healthy because weight is only one indicator of health, and B, it does not mean that whatever it is that they think is keeping them slim is what you should do in your life. So definitely it is complicated um, and dietitians, nutritionists, they are professionals who can help you in this space. And yeah, people don't want to ask because they think um, that they'll look silly because, you know, food should be so simple. Um, but really that's what those professionals are for. And if you need legal advice, you'd ask a lawyer. So, you know, if you want nutrition advice or diet advice, ask a nutritionist or a dietitian. But what I would say is those are not regulated terms in Australia. Um, so make sure you're looking for a registered nutritionist or an accredited practicing dietitian. Those are the terms that guarantee that the person you're speaking to has a university level of qualification. Anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. Anyone can call themselves a dietitian. But um, those two terms um, will show you that you're getting a qualified professional. That's very important. Very important. Dr. Emma Beckett, thank you so much, everyone. Again, I... I Really urge you to follow Emma on Twitter at Synapse101 and also go follow her Facebook page, which is Dr. Emma Beckett, Food and Nutrition Scientist. Again, the content that she puts up is brilliant and I'm sure you'll all love it. Emma, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.